0: Good evening, Minister Darcy. Yes, it is. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for uh, joining us on air. I really appreciate it. No, I'm happy to. First of all, uh, I wanted to ask you, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said yesterday that decriminalization is not a silver bullet when it comes to the ongoing overdose crisis. What are your thoughts on this and what he said?
1: Well, there are no silver bullets. Uh, He's right about that, but decriminalization is an important piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. So uh, there isn't one simple magic solution. We need to work on a lot of fronts at once, and that's what our government is doing. We're working on prevention. We're working on harm reduction. We're working on treatment and recovery. We're working on expanding access to safe prescription medications to separate people from the toxic drug supply. But decriminalization is also very important because we need to start treating Addiction as a health issue period, not mm-hmm. as a moral issue and not as a criminal issue, and we absolutely need to go after the big, bad guys, so to speak, the criminal elements, the people who are importing these drugs, the people who are mixing these poisonous substances, the people who are killing our our, our loved ones. Uh, we have to go after them to the full extent of the law, but individuals who are struggling with addiction, we shouldn't be treating them as criminals, we need to be treating them as people who need healthcare and offering that healthcare and removing the stigma.
0: Right. Absolutely. And how is the provincial government working federally with officials to address the issue?
1: Well, we're working with them on, on several different fronts and they, they, they have provided some funding to the province over the last few years and, and, uh, in response to COVID as well so that we can stand up more virtual mental health supports, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I said, we, we know that we need to deal with this many different ways, uh, at, at you know many different ways at once so we need to start with our children and youth we need to prevent small problems from becoming big problems so if young people are struggling with anxiety or depression or high levels of stress we want to get them the support that they need early on before they either develop severe mental health issues or turn to substance use to sort of self medicate mm-hmm. for the psychological pain that we're experiencing so we're investing heavily In prevention and in early intervention, Um, but we're also we've also made a recent announcement about more treatment beds. We're more than doubling the number of youth treatment beds in the province, Mm -hmm. and that's critically important. Um, And and the access to counseling, uh, mental health and addiction counseling, we've significantly expanded access to that and either no cost or low cost counseling because you know we're so proud in Canada about our universal Medicare system, but for uh, mental health and addictions care, often there is an issue of how big is the size of your bank account? Can you afford it? We don't want money to be a barrier. So we're expanding public access. And, but this issue of access to safe prescription medication is also critically important. It's poison in the drugs on the street that's killing people. And so if we can get people safe prescription medications instead, that's so, so important to saving lives and helping people get on a pathway to healing and a pathway to hope.
0: Right, right. And and you talked about youth initiatives and a new mental health and addictions initiative for students in Richmond has now been implemented. Is there a plan to have these initiatives in all school districts across the province?
1: Well, we're getting started. We we now will be having them in five school districts of uh, five school districts initially and we're going to evaluate them very closely and look at expanding them. But the other thing that we are doing, and one of these is coming to Surrey, is the Foundry Youth Centers. Foundry Youth Centers are a one-stop shop for youth who are either struggling with mental health or substance use issues, or they could be just having real challenges in school, or having a tough time finding a job, or they don't have a family doctor. And these are one-stop shops. You can walk in the door, you can get seen right away, get wraparound supports. We're expanding the number of foundries to 19 across BC, and one of them is coming to Surrey. Mm,
0: okay. And and when we look at this issue of decriminalization, what can the province do on its own when it comes to, to looking into decriminalizing drugs?
1: Well, the Controlled Substances Act is a federal piece of legislation, mm-hmm. and um and so, you know, that we're pressing the federal government very hard and we're continuing to have discussions with them about that because we think we, we agree with the chiefs of police. They, police need to be focusing their energies where they where they belong, which is on the criminal element, not in criminalizing people who are struggling with a health issue that is meaning addiction. But within that context, we are pushing the envelope in British Columbia and there are several police forces. That already they've decided, you know, and and we agree with this that the priority should be on going after the criminals, not on individuals with addiction. And so, in 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 many many cases, they're not pursuing those. And we're building some really strong partnerships with police forces between police forces and health authorities, for instance. So in Abbotsford, there's something called Project Angel, which is police officers working with a team of. Peers, people who have themselves struggled with addiction, and they're instead of charging people, they are instead connecting people to um, mental health and addiction supports, and to healthcare supports and social supports in the community and trying to address some of those root causes, you know, um, of why people are, 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 are getting into uh, addiction in the first place. So we're already pushing the envelope and we will continue to and we'll continue to press the federal government that... Um, that we should not be treating people with a health issue as criminals.
0: Absolutely. And the pandemic we know has brought on many obstacles when we're looking at uh, the border being closed, leading to more of a toxic drug supply. What is being done right now to address that issue of toxic drug supply now that that border closure has, has been extended?
1: Well, you're absolutely right that the unintended consequences of COVID-19 measures have had a big impact on on, overdose, uh, on overdoses and overdose deaths. Mm-hmm. So the drug supply has been disrupted. And that means that we are seeing the most toxic mixes of drugs ever, ever in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Concentrations of fentanyl sometimes 40 times higher than in, than before. And sometimes mixed with other drugs like benzodiazepines and, you know, without getting medical or technical, what that means is that naloxone, which is a life-saving, uh, you know, is, is a life-saving measure, reviving someone with naloxone often doesn't work if you have that toxic mix of drug, drugs in your system. So it is, it, it, you know, so the, the toxic drug supply is the single biggest factor in the spike in overdose death because, mm-hmm. you know, Yasmin, has been the number of deaths was going down finally as a result of so much, both investment by government and the efforts of thousands of people on the front line. The death toll was going went down last year by 36%. A long way to go, but it went down and then it has shot back up because of the toxic drug supply and also because people are socially isolated. People are using drugs and alcohol more to deal with their anxiety and their depression and so on, and people are accessing healthcare services less. And that's where this issue of a safe supply of prescription medications is critically important because if people keep going to the poison drug supply on the street, the death toll is going to continue to mount. Mm -hmm. So in the same way that we offer prescription medications for other illnesses, there are prescription medications that can deal with, um, that can help people deal with addictions, and that's a big focus for us right now
0: right, so you're talking about uh, th- things like hydromorphone uh, that allow people to continue using substances but safely
1: that's right it's a safe prescription alternative mm-hmm. um, and 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 we've had a big push on that in the last few months because of, we absolutely want people to get on a pathway to rebuilding their lives on a pathway to healing on a pathway to help, to help them to recovery. But they need to be alive in order to get to that place. And so we need to save lives. We need to help people to stabilize their lives in order that we can then help them on their journey to um, to, to, to building building a better, better life. And, and that's where this is critically important. Having said that, we are investing in more treatment beds, more adult treatment beds, more youth treatment beds. We're, as I mentioned, we're more than doubling a number of youth treatment beds uh, in the province uh, for youth and young adults, and we've just opened a new youth treatment facility in Chilliwack with twenty with twenty beds. So we're, we're as I said, we have to work on many fronts at once.
0: Mm-hmm. And how are the supports for those frontline workers, for harm reduction workers or peer support workers, how are those uh, being prioritized at this time?
1: We've done a number of things on that front for uh, a few years now. We've been supporting frontline workers in the overdose crisis through Mm -hmm. something called the mobile, um, the mobile support team. Um, and these are basically, uh, people with experience themselves having worked on the frontline, caring for other people. So care, you know, caregivers supporting other caregivers. And there are literally thousands of people on the front lines who have been supported by them during the overdose crisis. And then during once COVID-19 hit, we really stepped up those efforts so that we are supporting people on the front lines of COVID-19 and in particular, putting programs in place to support uh, frontline healthcare workers. And so there are, if people go to the BC government website under COVID-19 and look up supports, mental health supports, you can find information there about supports that are available for frontline healthcare care workers, um, whether that's people affected by COVID-19 or whether it's people who are dealing with the, the public health emergency that's been with us for many, many years now.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Minister Darcy, for your time, for being here. I really appreciate all of your insight. Okay.
1: Thank you so much for your
0: interest. Bye-bye. Absolutely. Take care. Bye-bye. Mr. Ronnie Grigg. First of all, if you could just share with our listeners what has it been like to be a frontline harm reduction worker during the COVID-19 pandemic?
2: Um, well, I think the the way to uh describe it best is that um, you know, we we've, we've been in we're, we're well acquainted with a uh, public health crisis mm-hmm. as frontline workers because we've been in one since Officially, t- since April of 2016, but really, it uh, when when um, the proliferation of overdose deaths was acknowledged. But really, it's been much longer than that. Um, that uh, that especially the community I work in, the downtown east side in Vancouver, we've we've been dealing with a public health crisis for well over five years, mm-hmm. and and in in some ways there have been changes, right? That um you know, there are more services, but still the demand isn't being met met. So it's it's kind of the with the 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 current um COVID nineteen pandemic, it's just it's difficult. Just when you think things couldn't get worse, they get worse. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um yeah, it's been hard.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think a really big issue here is decriminalization. And I just spoke with Minister uh, Judy Darcy, Minister of Addictions, and she says that is a very important issue. But when we look at it, it's a federal issue. And Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is not calling for decriminalization. So, So what do you think about that? How can this be implemented on a provincial level?
2: you know i and anyone who's involved in uh, frontline harm reduction work is an advocate and we're working with uh limited resources affecting change for very marginalized people so it's really difficult to hear that um you know that there's nothing that can be done right mm-hmm. when people on the ground are advocating for more services drug users who are, who are at risk of of overdose death from a lethal supply are advocating for themselves right so I, I do have to say that there is an expectation that people in seats of power also advocate above their heads mm. and in some manner um, we need to uh, find a way within those limitations so uh, for example one of the the uh, places where I work the uh, overdose prevention um Society in Vancouver, they found a way. Uh, the, the founders of that, um, um, Sarah Blythe and, and others, they they found a way to, within the limitations of of what they were given, to make a difference and make sure people weren't left to die. So somehow we have to come up with with um, creative responses. Mm-hmm. Now I think that has happened. There is there there is some. Um, green lighting that's going on at the municipal and provincial level for doctors to be able to, uh, prescribe, um, uh, you know, a a safe supply like pharmaceutical, um, opiates. Right. And that would, that would be a positive response within that limit limitation of decriminalization Mm -hmm. that somehow we need to empower, um, people who are able to prescribe, to in fact prescribe. There's a big educational piece that has to come with that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some doctors that are readily on board and uh, there are some that are reticent, but in some manner um, there needs to be like, the, I would call it the moral courage to um, to step up and uh, and to make a, um, a prescription for safe supply accessible. mm
0: mm-hmm. And how does uh, the Vancouver Overdose Prevention Society? How does that differ from government-funded safe injection sites like Insight, for example?
2: Well, they, they are—they still—they do still have government funding, but they were set up as as a crisis response, something that um, that's easy to set up. For example, it was it was originally uh, set up in a in a tent in in um. A, a, a flea market area in the downtown east side. So uh, overdose prevention sites are supposed to be intended for crisis response. Now, I mean, we're over four years in, so they've become kind of normalized now and not uh, a crisis response. They've become a a pretty important part of the overdose management infrastructure. But... uh, uh, the The difference would be is that they don't have embedded clinical supports like there are no nurses on site unless someone may be volunteering uh, on occasion, you know for you know maybe a, a foot care clinic or or a wound care clinic or something like that. but uh, they they don't have the um, embedded clinical supports, and they're often run by volunteers or volunteers who get uh, paid by stipend. Mm-hmm. you know so that 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 you know that creates um, a difficulty in stabilizing your staffing group, right?
0: Right. And how can supports for people like you, for frontline workers, harm reduction workers, peer support workers, how can those be prioritized?
2: Um, The the way that I appreciate the question because – in in some way it it is a very uh niche part of healthcare like a very unique part of healthcare mm-hmm. right it's the uh healthcare services are done in areas where usually drug users um are using you know and uh, um and so so it it, it it may not be the most obvious form of healthcare but it's pretty hard to deny with the amount of overdoses that are happening and so in in some way the it isn't well um well understood the immensity of the task for frontline workers, right? Right. And and so often um decisions are made without uh their cons- consultation. For example, at the beginning of COVID, there was a um the services were reduced by more than half some of the op sites uh were closed for a week or two um, all of them had to uh, provide for social distancing so they were down to half of their booths you know think, things like that and uh, and and that means that frontline workers had to implement those decisions uh, overdoses weren't able to they were uh, managed differently and just all of the uh, the the complexity of overdose management uh, needs to be, um, uh, the consultation needs to happen with frontline workers because it, it, it is a difficult care model, right? It's, uh, it's um, harm reduction is noteworthy by, uh, you know, often the phrase is used meeting people where they're at. And, and the practical outcome of that is that harm reduction is done, like, On sidewalks and in alleyways and outside and and in in these very limited sites and um, or or sites with limited supports and so in some manner to make it more difficult for those people in that uh, providing that care in those areas really needs to be done carefully right so um, so the uh, hearing from frontline workers is is a critical part of
0: that right and and how can we look into increasing access to safe supply because we know that with this pandemic the border is closed it's leading to more of a toxic drug supply so how can we address that issue and and try to make it more accessible to a safer drug supply
2: well i i think to me it's pretty straightforward i think um i i i I would say that um the medical community needs to get on board you know that it that uh safe supply needs to be accessible through uh, uh um doctors and um uh, who are who are educated and informed and able to effectively support people its also it 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 um sometimes feels some uh, risky to listen to the needs of drug users for some reason, right. uh, And and if um, if the the drug supply that is being uh, um, um, prescribed isn't effective, doctors need to be willing to modify uh, their their course of action, and so. Really, that that educational piece of of hearing from drug users that, of, as to what their needs are. There's a lot of advocacy that is happening, and a lot of education that's happening from the ground up. Mm-hmm. And and right. that I would say that that um, that advocacy really needs to be listened to. Like it's it's a critical life and death right situation.
0: And, and, and Ronnie, lastly, I want to ask you as a frontline worker. Do you think that the government is doing enough right now?
2: Um, no, I, I mean every everywhere I've gone in this crisis, and and I've I've visited places across Canada and across North America. Um, there, one of the universal truths that I've discovered is that um, frontline workers are under resourced and. Uh, and are working beyond their funding mandate. So there is a lot of work to do. And, uh, funding is a part of that, but it's also policy, right? And, and policies that make this uh, life saving work more difficult really need to be, um, eliminated.
0: Right. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Ronnie, for sharing your time with us and and being here. I really appreciate all of your expertise.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. Take care. Bye-bye. Good evening, Kier. How are you?
2: Good, Yasmin. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course, thanks for for being here. So, Kier, can you tell us how does the Phoenix Society help minimize the risk of COVID nineteen when we're looking at the homeless population, many of whom are also endangered by the overdose crisis?
3: Yeah. Look for people that have been in treatment and recovery services in particular throughout COVID nineteen. Um, many service providers have had to make adjustments during this period. And for us, you know, we're like many of the others. We, we're licensed, so there was an added degree of regulation and controls that came in. That um, we, We've had to deal with significant changes such as access, um, really restricting outside visitors. Um, you know, we've, we've had to shut down many of the communal programs. And just look at those, you know, those cleaning measures, you know, physical... Uh, distancing and those kind of things as well and really modify some of the programming. So that really work really started back in March. And, you know, we're really coming through those phases now. And really, it's now, you know, just trying to continue those efforts as as COVID-19 continues. Mm
0: -hmm. And there is more of a call now for more addiction treatment in BC because we're seeing that spike in overdose deaths. But are people utilizing treatment services at this time?
3: We're still full. You know, we're nearly full. We had to uh, reduce some of the capacity. Again, you talk about some measures that we did to uh, keep people safe through Mm COVID-19. But um, throughout the crisis and this pandemic, we've continued to experience strong demand for our services. Um, So you know like that's you know there's there's some that i think have suffered we've heard some stories that some of the, the the local support recovery services um you know have have seen a drop off and we've seen that across the province in some of the areas where some resources were even forced to close but um i think there's definitely some bumps in access early on but as again as we've gone through the pandemic and got further into this that um you know many have been able to make some of those adjustments to make sure those vital beds have been able to reopen and uh you know, again, with recent announcements, looking to even, you know, extend access to to some of those services.
0: Mm -hmm. And advocates are really calling for a major expansion of safe supply programs to replace this increasing toxic drug supply, especially right now during the pandemic. What are your thoughts on this? How can we make a safe drug supply more accessible?
3: Well, it's definitely one piece of the puzzle. And, um, you know, when you have hundreds and thousands of people dying of contaminated drug supply, um, it's effectively a poisoning. So until an issue to address is can we provide people with a more regulated and, and safer supply um, so that they're not taking poisonous drugs? So, you know, there's been some, again, promising announcements in terms of looking to expand access to some of those services, even the Prime Minister... Um, You know, really one of the first public recognitions of the importance of of, um, safe supply and and looking to enhance, again, those type of services. It's unfortunately just the rollout in the province so far has just been bumpy and in many ways it's... um, I think a lack of the system getting on board in supporting some of those initiatives.
0: And, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau recently said that he right now isn't looking at decriminalization. However, people like Dr. Bonnie Henry have been calling for that. What do you think? Do you think that we should move towards decriminalizing drugs?
3: Yeah. I mean, as long as we continue to treat this as, you know, a policing substance use which you know many agree to be a health issue um you know we talk about addressing stigma and um you know criminalizing substance at the heart of that you know and so if we can address you know not pursuing prosecutions for for substance use and there were some alarming ones recently even in victoria um where you know I, i think that many um, police forces have moved far past looking to prosecute small possession type charges but I mm-hmm. think there's a massive um, symbolic gesture that from the federal government to to recognize just like I haven't ever federally recognized it's a public health emergency the overdose crisis again this is another massive symbolic gesture and beyond that not just symbolic but really practical changes that could come out to recognise this as a health issue and, and maybe start re, you know, redirecting some of those important resources away from enforcement and prosecution and criminalising um, substance use to, to treatment prevention and these important pieces.
0: Mm -hmm. And do you think that at this time, as we are very much allocating majority of funding right now towards targeting the COVID-19 crisis, when we are seeing more deaths due to overdoses, do you think that that issue is falling behind the COVID-19 pandemic?
3: It's dramatic. I mean, there's been recent data summaries in terms of BC alone over the last several months. When we're losing in excess of 170 people a month for three consecutive months right now, and we're just over 200 people for the entire COVID pandemic, I mean, you know, you look at... They have pulled out every stop to address COVID-19. And, of course, it's an important public health emergency, a pandemic that's affecting so many people. But, you know, I can't say there's the same level of urgency or investment. And, um, if if anything, you know, we're over four years into this, this crisis... And, and it still seems like we're tackling issues for the first time, which many have been calling for for, for years now.
0: Mm-hmm. And what do you think Cure government intervention should really look look like at this time? What do you think they should be doing?
3: Well, I think many of the components have come together. I mean, apart from, as we say, there's some significant things at the federal level, and I think, quite frankly, even further investment from the federal level to address, the, you know, the overdose epidemic. Um, but, you know, there's, again, there's been some promising announcements provincially. There's, there's again, more investment in treatment and recovery services, more investment in mental health services. You know, we're, we're seeing expansion of safe supply. Um what I think is missing right now is the connection and and really seeing an, an effective system of care for sub, to address substance use.
0: Mm-hmm. And are there, when we look specifically at the South Asian community here, we know that the Phoenix Society is located here in Surrey. Do you think that there are enough culturally relevant uh, areas of treatment here that really provide care specific to to that group of people, to the South Asian group of people, as we saw from that report from Fraser Health, that South Asian men are more likely to die from a drug overdose.
3: Yeah, I think the data shows us that perhaps there's not enough investment, or at least there's people aren't accessing what is available. So, I mean, there are some important services in Surrey, such as the Roshni Clinic, there are some you know again um southeast asian led um treatment programs as well but you know it, it is a large population that historically has not accessed care um i think there's a significant amount of stigma still attached to mm-hmm. um bringing this issue outside of the family and um i think we have to continue to invest in culturally appropriate and safe services um like we do with indigenous population right you know, there's, there's really, it's a similar issue. We have to tackle it in a way that is sensitive and appreciative to the cultural needs of that population. And um, Surrey is really at the heart of that population. I, I 100% agree that more could be done.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Kira, so much for your time and for joining us as a panellist for this very important discussion. I appreciate it.
3: Thanks for having me on. Take care. Bye.
0: Good evening, Samir. How are you?
4: Hey, I'm good, Yasmin. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, of course. Thanks for being here. Can you tell us a little bit about the Rapid Access Addiction Clinic and what services they offer?
4: Sure. Uh, The Rapid Access Addiction Clinic uh, is a uh, a low-barrier outpatient addiction treatment clinic uh, located at St. Paul's Hospital. So we're inside of the hospital, um, and we treat Uh, full spectrum of of substance use disorders. So um, obviously opioids are getting a lot of the uh, focus right now, but Mm -hmm. we also do treat um, other substances, uh, alcohol, benzodiazepines, stimulants, et cetera.
5: Right.
4: Uh, So the mandate of the clinic is really to um, uh, see people quickly, um, get them engaged in care, help them stabilize, and then transfer them back into the community, into primary care for more, sort of ongoing longitudinal treatment.
0: Right. And many of our guests this evening spoke about the importance of education and training when it comes to people who are in medicine in order to understand the need of prescribing drugs like hydromorphone. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Is this something that is also a priority at uh, the Rapid Access Addiction Clinic?
4: Yeah, it definitely is. Um, and And I think that's absolutely... Um, absolutely true. That uh, <clears throat> training is, is integral to, um, you know, developing this system of care and uh, and just building capacity. Um, not everybody, not everybody might talk to someone in a specialized clinic uh, for the first time. So it's really important that the entire healthcare system understands and uh, and learns how to treat substance use disorders. Um, it, it is a uh, a chronic health issue, so we need it's it's time to kind of recognize that and make sure that it gets treated that way.
0: Mm-hmm. and there's also an issue right now of people potentially not able to receive care with a delay in treatment. What have you noticed right now at, at the clinic?
4: Um, yeah, i I mean, in terms of access to care, I think it's an ongoing Process, um, you know, to, to scale up services. Um, at the same time, you know, we're dealing with dual prob- public health emergencies. Um, obviously, the, the COVID-19 pandemic and and also an opioid uh, overdose epidemic. Um, so there's, you know, a, a great deal of need for for healthcare services for <clears throat> all all the different uh, uh, populations and needs. So. Um, yeah, I think it's a process to scale up these things. But, um, you know, obviously we're, we're in a place right now where things um, are, not, are not great. We've had three months of consecutive uh, high, high numbers of, of overdose deaths. So, um, you know, that, that can't happen soon enough.
0: Yeah. And what do you think are the main factors that are contributing to that, what we're seeing right now with the record overdose deaths?
4: Uh it's really hard to pinpoint. I mean I think it's multifactorial for sure though. Um, you know, obviously with uh, um changes in 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 travel and, and in terms of um, uh in terms of goods and sales being able to come in and, and out of the country fast the way that they used to be, um, you know, I think that's really affected the illicit drug supply at home here. Um we're seeing a, a much more toxic drug supply. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's certainly in a lot of people that I've talked to, there's um, a lot of fear about about uh, COVID-19. And, and I think that, um, you know, people are afraid to go into hospitals right now. People are afraid to go to healthcare providers. Um, so like I said, I think that there's probably a number of other factors as well, but um, those are definitely a couple of, of important ones
0: yeah and addiction is not just a medical issue it's also mental and, and emotional how does that part of it get addressed when we're looking at the rapid access addiction clinic
4: yeah um, it's it's definitely a complex uh, complex issue and and I think um, first and foremost um, it's important to to be very welcoming and to um, encourage people to come in to, to seek treatment. Um, you know, it, historically, um, the medical system hasn't always been a welcoming place for people who who need help with substance use issues. Um, so, you know, I think engagement is, is first and foremost the, uh, the the first thing that we need to make sure that we are trying to accomplish. Um, mm-hmm. and And just letting people know that, you know, come as you are, it, it, that that um, you don't have to meet any specific criteria, you don't have to jump through any hoops, just making it really accessible and, and available and, and making sure that um, healthcare providers are also well-trained and, and are able to deliver services in a way that's, that's judgment-free, that's trauma-informed, that, that meets people where they're at, Um, that recognizes that people have um, various life experiences. Some of those may have um, contributed to people's substance use um, and and that it's important that we just meet people where they're at and and make sure that, that we're welcoming
0: Right, and right now there's kind of two sides of this and there are a lot of health officials like Dr. Bonnie Henry who are calling for the decriminalization of drugs, whereas Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says that he will not be moving forward with decriminalization. What intervention do you think that government and health officials should be doing at this time?
4: Yeah, uh, you know, I... I I, I realize it's kind of a political hot potato, um, and, and to this to this point, uh, we haven't seen the kind of action that's really going to properly address this issue. Um, you know, in, in in the circles that I travel in, in, in the medical community, um, you know, the, this issue of de- decriminalization and and safe supply has been sort of buzzing in the background for a while, and it's and it's really. Becoming clear, clearly obvious that 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 is necessary, and, and it's gone from a buzz to to kind of deafening now, where it's it's very there's a real sense of urgency um, that that people are dying at record record numbers, um, and you know conventional um, conventional systems of care um, have only led us to where we are. So it's it's really going to take. Uh, a, a different type of approach, a different type of action, to um, if we're going to have a hope to turn the tide on this thing. So, um, you know, I'm not a politician. I can't really talk to the political implications of, of this, but um, I'm a health care provider, and, and I know that people are are dying out there. And I think that what we've done so far just it hasn't been enough. And and I think that those types of <clears throat> interventions. While they won't solve the issue overnight, I think that it, it, it's kind of a place where we need to start.
0: Right. And and for people who want to access services at the Rapid Access Addiction Clinic, how do they go about doing that? Do they need a referral from their healthcare provider, or how can they get uh, treatment services there?
4: It's very simple. Just walk in. Um, we accept referrals from healthcare providers. We we do provide consultation to to healthcare providers that are already treating their patients, um, but for people who are who are trying to get access to care, um, where we are looking for you, we want to see you. Um, so, really, no referral required, no um, no pre-screening. Just just show up at our door. Um, you will be seen. Um, again, it's it's. Supposed to be very low barrier, and and we want to we want to give people the help that they need. So, um, you know, we're open seven days a week. We're we're looking to expand our hours um, into the evening. We recognize that not everybody um, can uh, can do a a schedule uh, of eight thirty to four thirty, but um, but but yeah, we're open on weekends. We're we're looking to expand and just walk in.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Samir. I think that's really important for everyone to know that they can just walk in and and they will be able to receive care. So that's great. Thank you so much for being here with us. I appreciate it.
4: Thanks, Jasmine. Nice talking to you.
0: Yes, you too. Take care.
4: Take care.
0: Good evening, Jane. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Great. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it.
5: Okay, great. Great program. Thank you very much for inviting me. Of course. Well, first of all, what do you
0: think about the current government? What do you think they should be doing right now in terms of targeting the opioid crisis?
5: So what I've been trying to advocate for is uh, more access, greater access to treatment and recovery beds. Uh, what we have right now is a situation that not only, and some of your guests have alluded to it before, is it difficult to get access to some services, um, not necessarily just because of COVID, but that has exacerbated the situation. But we actually have in um, residential uh, treatment and recovery facilities, we actually have beds sitting empty. Mm-hmm. And the reason why they're sitting empty is because they're not getting funding. And so what I've been advocating for, in addition to uh, obviously getting more treatment and recovery beds available, but we could immediately make some significant changes today because uh, when I called randomly uh, nine facilities a couple weeks ago, Uh, Just facilities that I know, reputable facilities that were um, in the, actually not just in the lower mainland, there was a couple that were um, also out of the lower mainland. Mm -hmm. I found on that one day with nine facilities that there was 126 beds that were sitting empty. So we need to open up those beds, we need to fund them so that when people are ready, and um, uh, willing to get into uh, treatment and recovery services, they need those, those services immediately because sometimes there's a small window um, to, to get people when they're ready. And, and if they have like huge waiting lists or there's gaps between services, that's when we lose people. Right. And
0: you mentioned this in terms of funding for more recovery beds. And I spoke with Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, Minister Judy Darcy, and she said that the government has now committed to doubling treatment beds in order to address recovery. Do you think that is enough or do you think that they can be doing more?
5: Oh, for sure. I mean, every time there, there's an announcement that there's increasing in uh, recovery beds, that's that's great. That's great news. But the fact is, is that the announcement that was made with regards to increasing uh, recovery beds was between 50 and I think 70 beds. Well, we have, as you know, um, 177 people that died in June of mm-hmm. an overdose and certainly the overdose deaths Um, Have been have been increasing over recent months, but the more significant figures are the total overdoses, i.e., non-fatal overdoses. And you may recall that the paramedics put out a in British Columbia put in put out a a release a few weeks ago saying that the month of July there was twenty seven hundred people that they revived from overdoses. So there's a huge demand for services. And um, the, the the idea of, of, of announcing uh, 50 extra beds, that's great. But that's an RFP process. It's going to take time. But something that we could do today would be to open up and fund the 126 plus odd beds that are actually sitting empty uh, right now in facilities. It would cost nothing, no capital no capital um, amounts needed. So that's what I'm advocating for is something immediately that we could do right now.
0: And how do you think that COVID-19 has played a role? Because we saw that this issue was actually getting better. Of course, it's been a public health emergency for years now, but it was getting better. We weren't seeing these numbers when it comes to overdose deaths, but now with the pandemic, we are. So how do you think targeting these dual public health emergencies has played a role in really seeing that spike in overdose deaths?
5: Oh, for sure. I mean, it's definitely had a significant uh, impact. Um, You know, I I think one of your other guests said that the the services and availability to some of the services had decreased um, significantly during COVID, although I think that's starting to increase uh, now, so that's all good. But I think the significant issue is, is that although deaths had started to subside, the total number of overdoses, i.e., we're not getting to the root of the addiction. Sure, we are reviving more people. We're keeping people alive, but we're not getting to the root of the addiction. And we know that the root of the addictions is is multifaceted. It could be pain. It could be mental health. It could be trauma that somebody has experienced over their lives. But if we're not getting to the root of the addiction and getting into proper treatment for mental health, etc., cetera, then we're never, ever, ever going to curb the addiction crisis. And I think another one of your guests said that it's not just the opioids. We are talking about over, uh, overdose deaths because of um, the, the opioids. But we have an addiction crisis when it comes to other drugs as well. Mm -hmm. And the most recent um, uh, coroner's report said that although um, fentanyl, illicit fentanyl and analogs were found in like 83%, of the toxicity death samples but cocaine was almost 50 and methamphetamines and amphetamines were 34%. So there's other drugs that are involved here that people are addicted to that um, are not necessarily captured in the conversations that we're having uh, currently.
0: Right, and that is a good point to bring up as well, As it's not only fentanyl, there are other drugs as well. And I wanted to ask you that experts are calling for um, decriminalization. They're saying that this recent spike is largely due to the toxic drug supply. What would you say on that? Do you think that we should move towards decriminalization?
5: What I think that needs to happen is that we need to have a national conversation about this. Uh, People have heard me speak about uh, what they're doing in Portugal. In 1998, uh, their cities in Portugal looked like what our Vancouver looks like right now. And they had a huge national conversation about this. And they had expert panels, and they did a review. And uh, these people that that were part of these expert panels, and this included public public input as well, came out with hundreds of recommendations. Only one of them was decriminalization. So they did decriminalize all drugs, not legalized, because a lot of people are confused about the difference. They don't even have legalized cannabis in Portugal right now. Mm. But what they do have, and this is what makes them successful, is, is that they have a very comprehensive and seamless, accessible, treatment and recovery system so that if somebody is found to be addicted and needs help with their addiction they're diverted into the healthcare system out of the justice system to allow them to get help to eventually get well and that's the key so we can't just have decriminalization by itself We need a lot of other components and we need a comprehensive treatment and recovery facility for um, strategy that involves mental health and getting to the root of the addiction so that we can help people eventually get well.
0: Absolutely. And many of these interventions as well are on a federal level and provincial leaders are saying that there's not much they can do because of that. What would you say on that?
5: Well, I disagree. I think there's things that we can do. I I, I alluded to to one in particular that we could immediately today open up empty beds that are sitting there in these recovery facilities. But the other other, uh, thing that we could do, in addition to having a strategy to help people uh, with their mental health, um And this involves when I say a strategy i'm talking prevention, i'm talking about help in the schools and i'm take, I'm talking about immediate help for for children and youth that are struggling because right now, what we're seeing with the uh, the addiction crisis right now, and they're mostly young men, and they didn't they didn't get their their issues or their demons dealt with earlier, so now they're in a crisis. And this is where the deaths have occurred, so if we got to these um, these young folks when they were in the school system and we got them the help that they needed for anxiety or depression or their mental illness, got them assessed immediate access to to uh, counseling and treatment and and other services, we would be able to prevent a lot of uh, you know the dismay and the family. Uh, the family dismay, and and all of these families that are, that are are being affected by this, because everybody that has died is someone's loved one, mm-hmm. and and it's just it's just tragic that this continues to go on. And we, you know, we we say that we, you know, what, it, um, what the definition of insanity is to do to do the same thing, but expect different results well we need a drastic conversation a national conversation about this issue like portugal did way back in you know 1998 or whatever it was and and then and only then uh can we we, can we uh get the the support from from the public to actually devote these resources in a prevention and a treatment and a recovery system to help people get well
0: Right. And I want to ask you as well, Jane, a large proportion of our listeners are South Asian. And we saw a report recently from Fraser Health that said majority of people uh, likely to die of a drug overdose were South Asian men. Uh, Do you think that there is enough being done right now from government officials to target culturally relevant uh, sources of, of treatment?
5: I I totally agree with you that we do need to pinpoint uh, specific cultures, because um, if, if there's a lot of stigma going on with families um, or individuals or or different different populations in our communities, we have to target those those uh, communities and make sure that they are that whatever treatment that we're doing is culturally sensitive, as well as understands that perhaps there's a, a lot of stigma in that community. So if If South Asian men, and it's probably young men Mm -hmm. um, who are suffering the most, well, then we need targeted uh, services uh, in the schools uh, as well as um, in, in the workplace to help them. And, and, and realize that they, that there are services out there. We need more, obviously, but there are services out there and to encourage them to seek those services. And a lot of times what that means is, is that they need to feel that if they do go out and get help, then they won't be ostracized. They won't get fired further from their job. They won't be. You know, excommunicated from from their 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 community or whatever. They need to feel supported so that they can reach out and get that help. And if that is is culturally uh, appropriate help, then uh, we need to do more of that.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jane. I I appreciate all of your insight on this issue and uh, sharing all of your thoughts with us here. I I appreciate you taking the time out to do so.
5: Well, thank you very much, Yasmin, for doing uh, a wonderful program today. And um, I I bet you you've saved some lives.
0: Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Take care. All right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Good evening, Upgar. How are you?
6: Good evening, Yasmin. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks so much for being here. So can you tell us a little bit about this app? What exactly does it do?
6: Uh, It it serves both. Healthcare functions, social functions. It, it, the intention of the app is really to get the information into the hands that need it the most. There's gaps when it comes to people accessing the right uh, resources to address overdoses, mm-hmm. and those gaps largely stem from. Uh, people not being able to access it, whether it's a language barrier or a cultural barrier or simple ease of access due to socioeconomic factors. So the uh, the app, in its origin, was really created to address all of those issues by making it uh, it's, it's a free app. It's available on multiple platforms. Um, it helps individuals understand and uh, identify what an overdose is. This is something that's potentially brand new for many individuals, if not communities. Um, in addition to that, you're able to it has an inbuilt 911 calling feature, so you can call, reach out to 911 at any point that you're uh, dealing with a, a crisis situation. Um, also guides you step by step through uh, the emergency protocols when there is an overdose that you've identified, uh, and also it helps you to uh, administer naloxone, which is really important when uh, when you are confronted with such a challenging circumstance.
0: Absolutely. And how did you get involved in, in creating this app? I mean, this is a very important step to take in educating the public about how uh, to deal with an overdose emergency. So how did you begin actually creating this?
6: I- I, as I mentioned, I think it was um, it has a lot to do with addressing gaps. So it, whether it's my origins as a first responder many years ago, my work on uh, it, the challenge itself of the crisis going back to about three, four years ago, uh, working with epidemiologist team interpreting data that was starting to reveal that BIPOC communities are overly impacted
5: mm-hmm.
6: um, or overrepresented when it came to the data of overdoses. Um, and then coupled with that, um, we convened our first community summit um, with a group of people just to try to illuminate uh, and bring the message forward that this is now affecting communities that perhaps we had not identified before. Um, And then also at the same time, understanding that while we're doing this work, um, there isn't enough being done or directed to communities. Uh, You can convene tables and you can have plenary sessions and, and and wonderful meetings but ultimately we required action. And so this is the app itself is a manifestation of a desire to need action to have boots on the ground to, you know, have the community do something for ourselves. So if if we're not being served um then it's one thing to cry foul but we probably won't get the results we're looking for at least in the immediate setting that we need them. So we have the ability to do it. So that's really why we ended up creating it.
0: And and there is such a stigma when we look particularly at the South Asian community regarding drug abuse. How would you say that the app works to address that?
6: Yeah, um, stigma does stem from, and this is based on, um, you know, we have numerous amounts of uh, conversation, dialogue with community, and this is not just within the context of the overdose epidemic, uh, the crisis. We've been doing this for many, many years. So we're able to turn to those community members um, that are participating in other programming and just ask them, well, what do you think? What should we be doing here? And um, one of the things that came up over and over again is stigma, and stigma really stemming from um, perhaps is not a cultural practice to openly discuss and have communications around taboo issues, whether it's, um, you know, it could be sexuality, it could be uh, consumption of your your diet what kind of diet you participate in and mm-hmm. also when it comes to substances you're consuming whether it's alcohol and drugs so what you have is a situation where um people are doing it there's there's no doubt about it the data proves it um it's grim data and um but we're not talking about it so over and over again um you'll hear people talk about how you know someone suffered or ultimately unfortunately died but it, they'll never mention that it it was related to drugs and so, um, yeah, the, the two things just do not, they do not match. So, so what we have is we have an ongoing challenge when it comes to a horrible, horrible supply on the streets of drugs. We have uh, a community that doesn't have the resources and access to resources that it needs. And at the same time, we also have communities that perhaps just do not have the tools to begin to start communicating and knock down the barriers of communication.
0: Right. And you mentioned this about being able to provide a resource. And is this app, is it available in multiple languages as well?
6: Yeah. So the intention was that this is not just something that's affecting South Asians. This is affecting multiple BIPOC communities. They're, uh, they're, you know, the urban Indigenous communities or Indigenous communities throughout the province our uh, Black populations. Right. Uh, 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 So so it's affecting everyone. So we really need to get resources out to every single one of those communities. So it's it's a daunting task. um, And that's really why we are now looking for support of any kind so that we can continue to make this a more robust and responsive um, technology. So what we've done based on statistics um, as the uh, chief medical health officer's report indicated that it was the South Asian community that was overly represented, yeah. we rolled with that out. We rolled that out first, so it's a, it's available in multiple ang- uh, English and Punjabi soon, uh, urban uh, or soon uh, indigenous uh, language, the Stolo uh, Zastolo, uh and so we will be adding more and more languages and more uh, creating a robust platform based on need from the community. but uh, in order to do so, we really need uh, we need partners to step in and really make it uh, more ubiquitous and accessible.
0: And would you say that there is a lack right now of services that are targeted towards the Indian community? as you mentioned, the Fraser Health report where we are seeing an overrepresentation there specifically from South Asian men. So would you say that there is a need for these services that are culturally relevant?
6: You know, and I'll be really blunt here. There's a tremendous need. And anyone who has boots on the ground in the community, they will tell you that. Uh, and I mean in an authentic way, that they're in the community, they are walking the street they're talking to folks they are empowering individuals they're providing services anyone who is engaged in that kind of work will tell you there's a glaring lack of lack uh, of services there's a huge gap when it comes to service delivery um that's not to say there are attempts being made but those attempts largely do not um they, they're not delivering and uh and and perhaps they're not uh, there can be many explanations for that. Maybe there is lack of consultation, um, a lot of misfires that have been happening. So there are people who are frustrated, they're they're fed up, and they really want to see change. They're not seeing it, they're not they're not getting what they want. And so, um, you know, Those of us who are able to create platforms um, to do to address those needs, we're trying our best, but we really need um, everyone to get involved in this.
0: Right. And I also want to ask you, what do you think the government should be doing right now? Government as well as health officials. There is this ongoing debate right now about decriminalization in order to really solve that issue of a toxic drug supply. But what do you think?
6: I'm very thankful, number one, that the conversation's happening, finally. Uh, This should have happened many, many years ago. We are... And and I hate to sound grim, but we are stacking bodies. We mm. we are losing people all the time. We're hitting historic highs. And, you know, whether it's talking about decriminalization, safe supply, um, access uh, to resources such as this app, uh, disseminating this app, we need people to get involved. We need government to support these initiatives, right? So communities cranking these things out because they, they simply don't exist. And so we need government to be involved. Um, they need to step up. Um, And so, um, and to answer your question, decriminalization, people are going to do drugs. This is not a uh, a fact that's been revealed over the last few months because we're hitting historic highs. This is not something that was revealed in 2017 when we had the peak of our crisis then. This has gone on for thousands of years. People Mm -hmm. will use substances. Um, And so it is incumbent on us if people are using them. Um, we need to have a safe supply. With our borders closed right now due to um, due to COVID, it's understandable we have heavy restrictions and controls on who gets in and who gets out, but at the same time that's resulting in it in a very, very toxic supply that's on the streets. Um and I and I often say there's about fourteen analogues of fentanyl that are on the streets and each one is very, very extremely toxic.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's
6: killing people. Right. And so these are decisions that have to be made. Uh, they have to be informed, but they have to, we have to make emphatic, um, solid decisions that are going to save lives. And right now that's not happening, but I'm hoping that now that we have, uh, we had such a wonderful response at the federal, provincial, even municipal level to COVID. Um, And we're still dealing with that challenge, but the response has been impeccable. Um, And I'm hoping now uh, we can get the same for for this crisis.
0: Do you have a worry, though, that because we are so focused on COVID and and much of our funding is allocated towards fighting that crisis, that the opioid crisis is going to fall behind that and kind of get overshadowed by COVID-19?
6: Um, n- no, I'm not worried that it's COVID that's overshadowing this. I'm I'm worried that it's perhaps ignorance mm-hmm. that's overshadowing. I'm I, I'm worried that uh, it's the othering of the problem that's overshadowing. I think COVID, our response to COVID is justified. It's a global pandemic. We need to be doing more for that, and, and we have done really well. What worries me is that for so long we have taken. Uh, the challenge posed by substance use and other the problem. Well, it's a downtown east side problem or it's a Wally problem mm. or, you know, it's that community of individuals. It's that community of that socioeconomic status. That's simply not true. This affects every single person, people who look like me, yourself, our loved ones it can affect anyone at any time and so until we start to realize that until government until community until everyone gets on board with that we're not going to change anything and that's truly my worry and uh, you know the app is designed intentionally for community it's it's it, a user could use it but it's really designed to empower community to engage every single member of our community to say you know what uh, this is for you. This is for for you to be involved. You all have phones. Users oftentimes will not have a phone, and if they have a phone, they'll be lucky to have Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they have Wi-Fi, you know, even whether they're, regardless of socioeconomic status, many people just, it's the last thing on their minds to pull up technology. So what we, based on that feedback that we received this was designed for community Um, perhaps you're not a user of uh, opioids or substances but you are certainly going to encounter an overdose or a challenging circumstance at some point so it's good to be informed and what that does it ultimately stimulates you to think well wait a minute this is not just them or, or us versus them this is this is all of us and we all need to do something we need to do it immediately
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much. I think that's a very great point that you made in in knowing that we need to erase that stigma and that sense of othering as well that is so prevalent um, within communities is is to understand that it really could happen to anyone. And I think um, having a resource like this that is able to inform people and educate them is really important. So thank you for speaking with us, Upgar. I appreciate it.
6: Thank you so much, and I appreciate you taking the time on this really important topic. Thanks.
1: Yeah, of course. Take care.
6: All right. Bye.